Okay, let's get going. Thank you all very much indeed for coming. I'm Raphael Hogarth. I'm an associate here at the uh, Institute for Government, working on legal aspects of Brexit and wider constitutional reform. Uh, and I'm delighted that we're joined this evening by Sir Jonathan Jones QC, uh, Treasury Solicitor, Permanent Secretary of the Government Legal Department, Procurator General and Head of the Government Legal Profession, here to talk to, talk to us about legal advice in government uh, and the role of lawyers in government. Uh, and we're joined by Dr Catherine Haddon, Senior Fellow here at the Institute, uh, Constitutional Expert, Self-Proclaimed self Constitutional Agony Aunt. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, before we get going, a few little bits of housekeeping. First of all, we are on the record and being live streamed. Uh, the Twitter hashtag for this evening is hashtag IFG Jonathan Jones, uh, and we will be live tweeting the event at IFG events. Uh, in the event of a fire alarm, please exit the building down the stairs and do not use the lift. Uh, the gathering spot is outside by the King George VI statue. And finally, in the event of a first aid incident, Please clear the room so our designated first aiders can deal with the situation. Um, brilliant. Without further ado, Sir Jonathan, maybe you could give us a, an introductory overview of what the Treasury Solicitor is, what lawyers do in government. Well, you very kindly introduced me with that sort of string of more or less meaningless titles, <laughs> uh, which took up about the first three minutes. But um, in summary, my job is to head up the government legal department, which does most of the government's legal work, not all, but most of it, and that you could divide up in the following way. This is advice to ministers and departments on the development of policy and the implementation of policy and the taking of decisions, advice on all aspects of law spanning the whole of government, uh, working on legislation, so creating the law, which could be drafting secondary legislation or instructing parliamentary council on bills, uh, it involves conducting most of the government's litigation, so uh, judicial review, challenges of all kinds, damages claims, uh, all the sorts of litigation that the government take, uh, faces in virtually every kind of court and tribunal uh, up to the Supreme Court. Uh, and then sort of on top of that or as part of it, there are various specialist functions within uh, the department, including, I've mentioned the litigation function, but on top of that, our employment law group, which does what you might expect, advice on uh, development of em employment policy as it affects the government, handling employment disputes and so on, and representing departments in employment tribunals, and our commercial law group, which handles a wide range of commercial law procurements, projects, contracts, and so on, some of the very big uh, project work that government gets involved in. So let's, let's zero in a little bit on the advisory aspect of that work yeah. and the, the role of lawyers in making policy. What, what does that look like? So is advice going directly to ministers? Is it being mediated by policy officials? What sort of stage do lawyers get involved in the policy making process? And do you think that works in the right way? Uh, well, we like to think that it could be any of those, but we like to think that by and large, lawyers will get involved as early as possible in the process so that they have an opportunity to spot early what the legal issues might be and if there are problems, if there are likely to be legal risks or obstacles in the development of a policy, then they have a chance to help shape it in a way that minimises or mitigates those problems. And the, the sort of classic way not to do it 
is for officials or policymakers of any kind to dream up a perfect in inverted commas policy, then bring in the lawyers, and only then to be told there's a legal problem with it, and then it has to be unpicked, and everybody's cross, and the lawyers get blamed for undermining the beautiful policy. So that's the way not to do it, and most of the time, we don't do it that way. Uh, lawyers are brought in early, they're involved in the process of developing the policy, they help to shape it in a way that makes it legally robust, um, and that uh, is, for a start, it's more interesting for the lawyers, it produces better, more legally robust policy, um, and over time, what it means is you have this constructive relationship between lawyer, policymaker, and by policymaker, I include, of course, officials, but in the end, ministers who are going to be taking the decisions. And uh, most of our advisory lawyers are physically located close to, with, uh, the departments that they advise. So we have GLD legal teams based with all the main Whitehall policy departments, and that's precisely so that they can be uh, closely involved in the sorts of discussions I talked about. They're working closely with colleagues, policy colleagues, on the development of policy and the and, and the shaping of decisions. Kathy, you want to come in on this? You've you've, you've interviewed yeah. several ministers uh, for the IFG's ministers reflect program. How often do you get the impression that policymakers get cross, as Jonathan puts it, at the involvement of lawyers in policymaking? What do you think? What do you think is driving that kind of relationship? I, I, think they do, I don't think it's so much about the role of lawyers, whom I'm sure they have a lot of respect for, um, but I do think it is, there is something about uh, the nature of policy making and when legal questions come into it that certainly they talk to us about. I mean, one official put it to me as, as you know, they sort of listed all of the things that you might think about in terms of policy making, using the example of, you know, we decided to have a load of white mugs, and she said, the first things that you'll get asked is what's going to be the cost of these mugs, and then it's what's the legal implication of these mugs. And she said, sort of, miles down the road, you might actually get on to, you know, is there a good reason to have white mugs? What's the evidence base for this? But actually, those top questions, a lot of the time, are around money and the sort of legal possibilities of it. Um, and certainly from ministers' point of view, that is one of the things, I mean, this government has been talking about it quite a lot, about judicial review, and it is one of the things that concerns them if they feel like policy options get closed down early on because somebody says, well, you can't do that because of the law, you can't do this, whatever. There is a good pushback to that, which is that that is the cost of, you know, making policy, that you have to think through, is it actually feasible, can you do this? Uh, within the law, what's going to be the sort of the risks, uh, how much is it going to cost you, how much is it going to tie you up and so forth. And I think, um, I think it's a very interesting question actually at what point uh, formal legal advice comes in and at what point actually policy expertise or policy officials are providing that. Because remember a lot of policy does not go through a very linear cycle from sort of conception of idea through to then implementation. Actually a lot of the times you're adapting existing policy, you're trying to fix problems that have just occurred in the system, uh, you're inheriting policies from others. So, you know, the, these questions can come into it at various different stages. And there's a lot of policy officials who have already been round this shop, you know, several times before and know a lot of the concerns that will be there, not just in terms of impediments to it, but also why you then need to have process in place consultation, impact assessments, environmental assessments, etc. 
to make sure that your policy is robust enough if it then faces judicial review further down the line. And this is the cost of doing policy making. I wonder, so you know, you've both talked about this uh, experience that policymakers and lawyers sometimes have in government where policymakers are told by a lawyer early on in the process this isn't going to work or it's not going to work the, you, the way you want to do it because we think we might end up getting judicially reviewed and we don't think this will stand up to challenge. How, how bad does it have to be for that kind of legal risk to kill a policy? So if, if, you know, if, if it looks pretty likely that a policy is going to be found unlawful but you can't be completely sure, is that going to kill it or is the option there for ministers and officials to say, no, actually, what, you know what, we'll take the risk, let's, let's forge ahead? Well, the, the question, as you put it, is not in the end a question for the lawyer. Mm. So yeah. the, the, the question for the lawyer is to identify and formulate and quantify what the risk is. And that can be very difficult and it can be subtle and sometimes there will be very clear case law and sometimes there will be none mm. and you'll be operating in a blank space. But nonetheless, the job of the lawyer is to give their best expert, professional, frank advice as to what the risk is. And we have some pretty well-developed uh, uh, guidance on how we approach legal risk, which will look at the different elements, for example, what's the likelihood of a challenge, what's the likelihood of a challenge succeeding, mm. and what are the consequences likely to be if a challenge does succeed. And there's a, there's a sort of matrix of issues which the lawyer will advise on. In the end, it's not the lawyer that decides mm. whether to take the high-risk route. There may be good reasons why ministers want, are prepared to take a high level of risk if the potential benefits of pursuing a particular course are such that it's worth the risk. But in the end, that's not a judgment for the lawyer. Mm. Um, are there ever occasions when the, legal, when the legal advice is so clear that there is no proper legal basis for doing something, and that really would then kill the policy, well, that's very rare, actually. I mean, it can happen, um, but it's very rare that the advice is so black and white. And the truth is, if the legal position is, is as clear as that, probably it will be obvious to anybody mm. from the start, and the issue will never get anywhere anyway. And do, do you think politicians and policymakers understand that, that it's their decision? If they're told by a lawyer, we can, we're reasonably certain that this is unlawful, but it might be lawful, and they understand that it's up to them? Well, um, I think mostly they do, mm -hmm. but it's a perennial issue. Um, the, 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 the way you put the question comes around all the time. So it's a constant question, I think, of educating clients, uh, of educating ministers, um, what we mean when we say that something is legally risky. And that's why we, it's why we really developed this uh, methodology to legal risk, which means we can be more precise, never completely precise, not mm -hmm. an exact science, but more precise in articulating what we mean about something being risky. So we don't just say, there's a legal problem here, and that means no. We say, no, there is a medium risk or a 30% risk that this will be challenged, and these are the grounds on which it might be challenged. Mm -hmm. And then you might go on to say, and here are ways you could adjust the policy to reduce that risk, and here's the way you might manage the consequences if you are successfully challenged. So you get into a much more sophisticated conversation, which is miles away from the lawyer saying, oh no, too risky, can't do it. Um, but you're right, I mean, there's, there's a constant need to, to educate and explain that to clients. And mostly, that is, what, that is what politicians and decision makers want. They don't want the lawyer saying no. They want, but they do, if they're sensible, want to understand uh, as fully as possible what the risks are. 
I mean, there's a good example going on at the moment, which don't worry, won't ask you about, of the government bringing in emergency legislation in order to retrospectively change sentences uh, and stop people being released too early in their sentence. And, it, you know, it's quite clear from everyone from the outside they will face a legal challenge over this. Uh, but the government know that, and they've taken on board the risk because the politics mean that they want to do it and they want to try and... Uh, you know, get it to happen, stop those releases. Uh, and that is a tricky decision, but ultimately it's a political decision that they have made, uh, which is fairly self-evident to everyone from the outside. What, what about advice on international law? Mm -hmm. It's obviously, it, we have a dualist constitutional system, international law obligations aren't by and large enforceable against the government before domestic courts. So is the approach of government lawyers and policymakers in government the same to international legal risk? Or do lawyers and policymakers approach those questions in a, in a different way? Well, fundamentally, international law is the law. It derives from obligations that either the government has, or a government has deliberately entered into through treaty, or otherwise arise under international law. Uh, and we treat that as the law, and the government is subject to the rule of law and will, will comply with those obligations. So the role of the lawyer so mutatis mutandis, or Latin may be banned. Anyway, the role of the lawyer, <laughs> so far as it uh, arises under international law, will be just the same. It will be to give the best professional device as to what the law means, how it applies in a particular factual situation, and therefore what is the risk that a given course of con conduct may be incompatible with that law. Um, the nature of international law may mean that the way in which it gets tested will be different because there may or may not be an international court. So the risk of litigation, the risk of challenge in a court may be different or indeed may be pretty fanciful in truth. Um, some, some international areas of international law, international treaties don't have particular courts that will enforce them. So you're not therefore talking about the risk of challenge in quite the same way. So there may be a difference but fundamentally uh, what you're talking about is the application of law to government policy and government decision-making, and the role of the lawyer is fundamentally the same, to interpret and apply that and give their best advice. You, you say that these cases when the advice is really clear-cut are very rare, uh, but I think a lot of us will probably be thinking about a few months last year uh, when the government was talking quite a lot about doing something where legal, I mean, the legal position seemed to every public lawyer I could find to be very clear, which was they seemed to be, there was a lot of briefing about the idea of uh, ignoring the Ben Act or the Surrender Act, depending on who you ask, which would have compelled the Prime Minister to seek an extension to the Article 50 period, indeed did compel the Prime Minister in the end to seek an extension to the Article 50 period beyond October the 31st. Um, and yet, you know, just after that Act was passed, it was reported that the Prime Minister had written to Conservative Party members saying seeking an extension is something I'll never do. Um, and ministers and uh, advisers were briefing constantly uh, that despite the fact that, that Act had passed, uh, the Prime Minister wasn't going to seek an extension. Uh, those can't have been very easy days at the office for government lawyers. Um, well, that was a very interesting period. Um, <laughs> for a variety of reasons. Um, but let's go back to the sort of basic proposition. Here was an Act of Parliament, uh, which I agree was clear. If the conditions were met, there was a clear obligation on the government to uh, seek an extension of the Article 50 period. And I'm not going to breach uh, client confidentiality, but you can assume that 
the relevant legal advice was given in government about the effect of that act. Um, and of course, in the end, the government complied with it and sought the extension, and indeed it was duly granted. So from that point of view, the law was applied and ran its course, and the right thing happened from a legal point of view. Uh, there's no hiding the fact that the obligation to seek an extension was massively unwelcome to the government. Uh, this act had been passed against the government's wishes. Uh, it was perfectly clear the Prime Minister did not want to seek an extension. As you say, there was a huge amount of public uh, statement to that effect. Um, well, whether that was or was not sort of uncomfortable for the lawyers, in the end that is not the law. What the Parliament and what sorry, what the Prime Minister and his advisers say about their um, uh, about the undesirability of an extension is not the law. Even if they say it in Parliament, it's not the law. In the end, the law is what they do and whether they comply with the obligations under the Act. And however reluctantly, and let's be honest, it was reluctant. However reluctantly, in the end, the Prime Minister did comply with the law. So it was a turbulent time, but in the end, what, ha what needed to happen, happened. Is there something a little bit wider than technical compliance with the law that's at stake, though, there? Because I think a, a lot of people uh, worried in that period that the government's statements, even if those statements themselves were not a breach of any legal obligation, signalled a lack of commitment to the rule of law as a value and as a principle. Um, is that something that government lawyers are interested in, that, that uh, exercises uh, lawyers in government? Uh, or or, or a, as far as you're concerned, is it your job to say, this is how you comply and that's the end of it? Well, I'm, I'm quite interested in the government's commitment to comply with the rule of law, <laughs> that's what you're asking about. Um, do I think it's my job to worry about still less police every statement the government might make about the law or whether or not it welcomes a particular legal obligation? In the end, no, there have to be some limits. And there will be occasions. I mean, it's quite rare for an Act of Parliament to be passed imposing a duty that the government doesn't like. That's very rare. Um, it's not so unusual for the government to lose a court case and be told that the law is something that the government would prefer it not to be. Uh, and in the end, politicians will express their displeasure if they disagree with or they're unhappy with a court decision. And on this particular case, uh, if they're unhappy with um, an act of parliament being passed against the government's wishes. In the end, I think I have to be realistic. Um, it's human nature uh, for um, ministers like anybody else to be unhappy with things that prevent them doing what they want to do or require them to do things they don't want to do. Um, but that, in the end, is not the law. Mm. And what matters, um, particularly in what here was a sort of hugely, we, we all know, is a hugely um, contentious, controversial area of policy. Um, the noises off were, were intense on all sides. That was just the nature of the issue. Um, but in the end, it mattered to me whether the government did, in fact, comply with the law, comply with the rule of law, and that, as I've said, is what happened. Mm. I mean, Kath, that, that whole period mm. uh, saw the government make a constant, I mean, it was a constant barrage of threats mm. uh, about various conventions, rules, uh, that it was going to 
disregard. It was going to not give the Act royal assent. It was going to uh, try to stop it getting through Parliament by refusing Queen's consent. It was going to ignore the Act if it passed. If it, it, at one stage, it, there was even briefing that it was going to ignore a court order compelling it to comply with the Act if somebody took it to court to get it to comply with mm. the Act. What was going on? Why were all of these threats made? which is just a very constitutionally extraordinary state of affairs. And then why were none of them made good? I, I'm not sure that I can answer that last point. I mean, you have to remember, like, that period, it almost made, you know, constitutional lawyers of everyone. And I think, actually, this is a really interesting question, is at what times ministers themselves, especially those who have got any kind of legal background, think that they fully understand the law and have a different perspective on any of it. And certainly in that time, I mean, my Twitter was full of people who suddenly knew all the ins and outs of uh, every aspect of the law as it pertained to Brexit and all the parliamentary proceedings. Um, and I'm sure the same was true in government and cabinet, in discussions that they were having about what they would, would not have to do. And there were many sort of, you know, there were a load of preceding moments as well. There was uh, the... Um, when they brought in the mechanism that they, the, this was uh, Dominic Grieve and um, the wider Gawkwood squad, as I think they're being called in history, I'm not sure if that's going to stick, but bringing in a mechanism whereby the government would have to come back and report on the uh, Northern Ireland Assembly in order to stop them being able to probe. There was obviously, you know, the later debate about prorogation itself in the Supreme Court case, and that there was the Ben Act and whether or not they would or would not have to comply. And there was a lot of discussion, actually, not just about uh, not wanting to comply with it, that the Prime Minister would just refuse to do so, but actually about all the different ways in which they thought they could get around it. I mean, we ended up with three letters, but there was a lot of talk about whether or not, you know, writing a particular paragraph beforehand that says, I don't want you to do this, but uh, would, you know, be legally compliant or not. David Allen Green had a lot of fun on Twitter, uh, repeatedly telling people that none of that would work. So everyone was considering themselves some kind of legal expert when it came to all of this stuff. And I'm sure those debates went on in number 10 as well. What one would hope is that they then sat down and actually listened to formal legal advice and didn't just sort of decide amongst themselves. And certainly, I think the key point is that they did end up complying with it. Had they not, I mean, that was the tricky territory that we were all sort of staring down the barrel of. of and the number of times I got asked by journalists of, yes, but what happens if they don't? Uh, and you have to kind of kept, keep saying, but they have to. <laughs> and it's like, but... Anyway, uh, probably best not revisit that in too much great depth. It was a difficult time. But I, sorry, I think, what was so difficult for a lot of people during that whole saga was working out exactly where the line, mm. as you put it, Sir Jonathan, is between the politics and the law. So you say, you know, what the Prime Minister says, even if he says it in Parliament, that's politics. Uh, what he does is the law. Um, well, actually, and also, I mean, and this is an interesting question I have on this, because at that time I kept being asked, well, hang on, the government doesn't always obey the law in all respects. And people were giving all sorts of examples where the government had pushed back uh, against legal requirements, whether it's from European Court of Justice or wherever, or from the Supreme Court, uh, where it takes time to comply. And they were asking, well, hang on, could the government not comply and what would the courts then do in response? So that's the kind of prior question of whether the government would have tried to test the law. And this, I think, in those weeks pre, you know, running up to it, we, we were talking about was would the government try to test 
uh, not complying with the law and then begrudgingly do so. In the end, they just did so with the deadline. Does, does the government ever drag its heels when it gets a judgment against it? Um, well, I, the number of points to make in response to that. First of all, testing the law. Mm. Um, there has to be something to test. Um, so in the sort of risk-based situation we've talked about, where, where it may be very likely the government will lose if challenged, but nonetheless there is a proper argument which can be run before the court. That's testing mm. the law, and the government is entitled to do that. And if it loses, this is not dragging one's feet, the government is entitled to consider whether to appeal. And that may have the effect of stringing the thing out, if you want to put it like that. But where there is a proper argument, the government is entitled to do that. In a case where there's no proper argument, and the law is clear, uh, there's nothing to test. Mm. Um, and practically speaking, it's impossible to see how you run a challenge in court if there's nothing to say mm. in the case. Now, as I say, that sort of situation is relatively rare. Um, but in, in the case where it is, um, you, in the case of the Ben Act, uh, I suppose what I've been saying is that you judge the legality of the government's actions not by the political rhetoric mm. or by whatever conversations were going on behind closed doors on which I couldn't comment, but about what the government ultimately does. And it did, in fact, comply with the obligation under the Act. One of the other sort of major moments of spotlight for government lawyers in the last year was obviously the prorogation case which followed. Um, and that's a case in which the government did have plenty to say um, when its counsel stood up in court. But again, um, that was a case at which that, that was a case in which in some way the boundary between politics and law seemed to be uh, in play. I mean indeed that was exactly what was contested on the issue of whether the Prime Minister's advice to, to prorogue Parliament was justiciable by the court in the first place. I think you know, a, lot of, uh, a lot of public lawyers, not even necessarily very conservative public lawyers, got a surprise when the Supreme Court handed down its unanimous judgment and thought that the court was moving closer to enforcing something that had historically been considered a convention rather than a rule of law, that is executive accountability to Parliament. What do you think the kind of long-term implications of that case are? Do you, has that case made things more difficult for you and for colleagues in advising ministers on the boundaries between political convention and rules of law? Well, it, the truth is it's very difficult to predict. It, this is a unique case uh, in by definition, an untested area of the mm. law, which is one reason why, of course, it was so difficult to predict what the outcome was going to be and why different courts in different parts of the UK uh, reached different views on it. Um, it's very difficult ever to see exactly the same issue coming before the court again. So in that sense, you might say it's a kind of one-off. To the extent there are any wider principles in there about the willingness of the courts to intervene in areas of the prerogative, frankly, it's your guess is as good as mine whether any similar kind of issue is ever likely to come um, before the courts ever again. Um, uh, so for the vast bulk of cases that we're advising on, I would say that's not going to make a huge amount of difference because in most of the other cases we advise on, there will be some, as there wasn't, of course, in the prorogation case, some existing legal code, whether it's statute, 
or common law precedent or some other principles, and that's what will guide our advice, mm. is what the existing law says. If we do someday end up in some untrodden area of the prerogative, no doubt we will be turning up the Supreme Court decision uh, in Miller II and asking ourselves, well, are there some lessons here about what the Supreme Court might do in this new untrodden area of the prerogative? But aside from that, what's the lesson? If you're operating in a hugely contentious area of law where there is no precedent at all, you can't be terribly certain what the outcome will be. Well, I don't think many lawyers would think that's a very spicy conclusion. Kath, a lot of politicians were pretty surprised mm. by what happened in Miller too, and a lot of mm. them were pretty cross about it, to use that word again. What, what do you think the kind of... Do you think we're going to f feel any kind of political or constitutional ripple effect from that case? Uh, I think we are going to, but it will be uh, on two fronts. I mean, one is going to be whether or not the government does anything specifically about it, either uh, on prorogation firming up um, how it is called and, uh, you know, in what circumstances and so forth. Uh, I mean, you know, the short answer, though I don't know that it's necessarily what they want to do, is if they want it to be clearer that prorogation is a parliamentary procedure and therefore the Supreme Court cannot intervene on it, it could just simply make it a parliamentary procedure where Parliament gets to prorogue in the future. But I'm not sure that it wants to do that. Um, the second issue is obviously what it means for how the government views the Supreme Court, and there's a lot of speculation mm. about that at the moment. Mm. Um, you know, whether or not it uh, tries to reform or change, you know, the, the Supreme Court or change anything around the appointment of judges or whether or not it tries to tackle judicial review and, uh, you know, make reforms either, you know, to the class of people who are bringing uh, it or to, uh, to it in other respects. And there does seem to be appetite to do so in the government. Um, you know, ministers that I've heard speak aloud on this uh, try to say that it's not just because of that case and it's not a matter of revenge over that particular case but actually concerns that have built up over a period of time. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of frustrations around uh, judicial review and the impact that that has on policy making. My own view is that if there's a problem in terms of policy making you probably need to look at policy making uh, side of it rather than necessarily the law unless there is actually a problem in law um, but yes it's probably going to run and run and certainly it gets people exercised still uh, the governments are in a more powerful position but they have to also think about the longer term they are currently in government at some point they will be the opposition again uh, so they need to leave a legacy that actually works for the system <coughs> as a whole uh, and not just in response to one case. I mean, it, yeah, it's interesting to consider this question of whether the government's, whether the Conservative Party's promise in the election campaign that it would deliver an update mm. to administrative law is basically motivated by losing in Miller 2 and it's really annoyed with the Supreme Court and it wants to get its own back. Mm. Or is there this sort of wider uh, disquiet uh, among uh, people in Westminster about longer term developments for courts? Uh, encroaching further into executive decision-making. What, what, what's your impression of that, Sir Jonathan? Does, is, is it time for an update? Does administrative law need an update? Um, well, these are matters being considered in government, but I'm not <laughs> again, going to comment on uh, issues that are still under consideration. Let me make two or three points. First of all, um, the government is entitled to consider whether to legislate 
to reverse the effect of the case that it's lost. Mm -hmm. That's not so unusual. Uh, uh, I'm not saying that would be straightforward in this case. I'm not saying it would be desirable. But it's a perfectly proper thing for the government to do. Having lost a case on, a, on an area of contentious policy, mm -hmm. it's entitled to consider where the parliament should step in and change the law. Um, and more generally, uh, the government is entitled to stand back and ask itself, what is the current state of judicial review? Uh, are there areas where uh, the law has gone too far or isn't working well or is acting in an undesirable way? These are all perfectly valid questions for any government to ask and in the end for any parliament to legislate on. And from time to time, Parliament does legislate in the field of judicial review. It's not so long ago that uh, uh, we had statute amending provisions on permission and costs and so on. Um, so the government's entitled to have a policy on those things. In the end, though, there will be some truths, in my view, that any government has to accept, which is that it is the proper role of the courts to scrutinise the legality of government action. Um, and you're not going to legislate that away. Mm. And I hope no government properly advised would ever want to. Mm. Um, because if you put it another way, uh, there is no law that can ever make it, uh, mangling all of this, legal for the government to act illegally, if you see what I mean. Mm. Um, so uh, the, the fundamental role of the courts in holding legality of government action to account is just, is just going to be there. Um, so against that background though, are there ways in which the government could, I'm making this up now, could codify some elements of, of, of administrative law, could look again at issues about how JR works in the courts, procedures around permission or time limits or disclosure or as I said costs or appeals, all of those things. The government could look at those things, I don't know what the outcome would be. But the fundamental point, the purpose of the courts under the rule of law to hold the government to account for legality of these actions, that's not going to change. So is the implication there that the government could try to codify the existing substantive law or it could try to change the existing procedural law, um, but there's not much point at trying to change the substantive law because the courts will find a way around any change it tries I'm to... I'm not saying there's no point in trying to do it. I think what I'm saying is that there will be some irreducible minimum beyond which uh, you, can't, you, can't, uh, you can't reduce the, the, the role of the courts. And in terms of the, the background to this, when people say that things have changed, you know, that the courts have got more, have got readier over the past half century or so to intervene in government decisions, you know, you've... You've been advising ministers and policymakers for a little while in government. Have you noticed a change in the approach of the courts um, to these cases? Um, well, it's 31 years since you asked. <laughs> so over that period, <laughs> certainly we have seen a huge development in uh, administrative law, um, in the role of the courts in scrutinising government actions. Undoubtedly true. Uh, and as is the way with our common law, that has developed case by case on the basis of precedent and, 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 and the courts have developed this, this system of administrative law. Um, in the meantime though, of course, Parliament itself has intervened, um, uh, not least by enacting the Human Rights Act, by creating a whole set of other uh, new um, 
constitutional instruments around devolution, and then you could add to that freedom of information and so on, um, uh, and more recently the public sector equality duty, and other public law duties created by statute, created by parliament, that also have effect on the business of government. And, of course, it then becomes the job of the courts to interpret all of those. I mean, easily the biggest of those is the, is the Human Rights Act. Mm. Um, but all of those other statutes create legal frameworks, legal duties, and, of course, the job of the courts is to interpret and apply those. So if you add all those things together, yes, definitely the role of the courts. And some of those things have moved in parallel. So along with the Human Rights Act, you've seen uh, the courts developing um, more sophisticated approaches to, to proportionality, mm. to, uh, to equality. Uh, again, there are statutory duties in that area too. So, so the common law has developed as, as, as statute law has developed. And it's undoubtedly true that overall that's, that's massively increased the scale and the volume of judicial review and of the court's role in relation to government. And you can measure that if you wanted to by the, the number of lawyers in government doing that work, which is now many hundreds, whereas in the past it might have been, you know, a few tens. So that's undoubtedly true. Now some of that, as I've said, if it wanted to, Parliament could step in and change. Certainly if there are specific statutory duties, Parliament could change them or repeal them. Parliament could, in theory, repeal the Human Rights Act. Um, but let's maybe not go there. <laughs> not at least while we're still party to the ECHR. Um, rolling back the common law, more difficult mm. and more prone to um, unexpected consequences. I, I want to touch on one more issue before we go to questions, which is um, the role of the Attorney General in these conversations and, and the role of the Lord Chancellor as well. I wonder if you could give us some picture of the sort of division of labour uh, between you, the law officers, and the Lord Chancellor uh, in making sure that when Cabinet sits down to make legally sensitive decisions, it is taking into account its legal obligations and it knows what those legal obligations are. Where, where is the line between official legal advice and sort of political or legal advice delivered by politicians? So I know you're hearing from the Attorney General tomorrow morning. So uh, he will give you his version of this. And of course, the truth is that these various elements of the system are perfectly aligned and <laughs> <laughs> perfectly interlocked. Actually, most of the time they are. Um, so the Attorney General, uh, obviously, is a politician, goes to Cabinet, sits at the apex of the whole government legal structure, and personally will be involved in advising on the most sensitive, controversial, high-profile legal issues of the day. That's all trite, really, and it's in the ministerial code. How you identify what they are, of course, will vary over time and will depend on uh, you know, what's going on in government. Um, in giving his advice, the Attorney General will, of course, um, be supported by government lawyers and there's an iterative process and there's a consultative process whereby the attorney will draw on, and very often there'll be more than one legal team involved. That's, that's classically where the attorney will be brought in, possibly even if there's a difference of view between different parts of government. And then you'll have a process where all the relevant legal teams, all the official lawyers, including where relevant me, will be involved and we'll pool our advice and we'll discuss it. 
and then uh, the Attorney General at the end of that process will give his advice. Um, and that's the culmination of that process. Um, uh, Brexit, of course, has, apart from anything else, been the biggest, most complicated, high-profile legal issue, probably any set of issues that any government has ever faced. And it's not surprising, therefore, that the Attorney General has had a particular and sometimes rather public role to play in advising on Brexit. But that's just really a particular example of the wider role. That's has has it been too public when, when the Attorney General's advice has been published, when Parliament has compelled the publication of that advice? Is, is that an appropriate uh, thing to, to get out into the public domain? Well, I'm, I think I'm sort of fairly orthodox on this, which is that by and large, there are good reasons why legal advice is confidential and it's kept confidential between clients and lawyer. And by and large, I think uh, it's best when that uh, is the case within government. Um, and uh, the same applies to uh, the Attorney General's advice. And all the usual reasons for keeping advice confidential apply to legal advice in government, which is to say it encourages the best, frankest advice. It encourages people to seek advice rather than to avoid seeking it for fear that unhelpful advice will become public. All of those are very well established rules for advice being confidential and the relationship between lawyer and client being privileged. All of those things, in my view, apply just as much to legal advice in government, including law officers' advice, as it does to any other advice. There's a sort of but lurking, isn't there? Um, uh, the but is that there just may be circumstances where sort of countervailing factors, which may be political factors, just make that position untenable. And in the particular case where the government, for reasons we've already been touching on, doesn't have a majority in Parliament, um, you end up in the situation where Parliament is in practice able to demand the disclosure of advice in circumstances where, frankly, that would not normally be desirable, and that's what was happening. So I wouldn't draw from that any longer-term precedent. There just may be circumstances where it's absolutely necessary to meet a, to meet a, a public political demand mm. that advice is published, but I wouldn't think that should normally be the rule. And it isn't. It definitely is not. No, but it, I mean, you can also see how the Attorney General's advice over decisions go to war in Iraq uh, was a precedent in many people's minds. Um, and that, you know, majority government came out in a different way, but that was another area where it was sort of very controversial, very high profile, and seen as the crux of the matter. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, Geoffrey Cox's advice over the backstop sort of reached the same level, but it was very mm -hmm. important in terms of people's decision-making about whether or not to support Theresa May's deal, so it was very politically yeah. uh, central in that. So I can see the sort of echo between the two, but both, obviously, were cases where the Attorney General was very much in the limelight. And I think. Can, do you think it can be desirable as opposed to merely necessary for that legal advice to get into the public domain, for Parliament to have a good look at that? Not. I think it, you've got to separate out two things, and I'm not sure whether you can do so, but there's, there's <coughs> Parliament wanting legal advice. And one of the things that we actually talked about was whether or not there's some greater mechanism for Parliament to be advised as to the legalities of, uh, you know, any particular interpretation of it. I mean, Geoffrey Cox obviously went and answered questions. He provided a summary of it and felt that that was his parliamentary duty to advise um, Parliament on his legal interpretation. But that's him coming there as the government's Attorney General 
whether or not, therefore, Parliament wants a sort of higher profile ro role for legal advice that it can uh, access. It has all sorts of, of means to do so, but, but not necessarily in the same level. Vers but it's that versus knowing how the government has been advised mm. and how that plays a part in it. And I mean, that goes into a wider question about all sorts of advice that they might get, whether it's the cabinet secretary's advice over a major constitutional issue, mm. you know, whether or not it's a permanent secretary's advice on the feasibility or the cost basis of doing a particular policy. You know, once you start opening up that, you get into all sorts of kind of problems of official advice. One of our colleagues, Jill Rutter, argues that actually openness might encourage uh, in, uh, officials to be bolder mm. in their assessments, points to New Zealand and says that actually that could help it. Where advice is published. Where advice is published, um, because it would provide you know, some kind of barrier that ministers know that you know, this advice is going to be published and therefore you need to be conscious of it. I mean, actually, one of the things that, that official... Well, people often talk about when it comes to those sort of high drama decision-making moments for ministers is knowing that the historical record is going to come out one day and knowing that it's you know in the cabinet minutes that it's in the paperwork that's being circulated and at some point uh, you are going to be asked about this decision that you made and why you went against advice or why you know you made any kind of decision that you might have done so but that's a time lag. Um, is, is that true of legal advice does that end up well, in the end, there is a, well, under FOI, the exemption for legal advice is only a qualified exemption right. as it goes, but there is a, there is a time limit right. rate anyway, so ultimately legal advice can come out. I mean, what um, it so happens, I was head of the Attorney General's office when Peter Goldsmith's advice was published, so I do feel I've been around this a bit <laughs> over the years. Um, but what I said, in the end, there may, yes, be countervailing public interest, political reasons why you make an exception to the rule. Uh, and it may be that advice on the legality of war is one of them. Um, uh, and in the end, any client is entitled to waive privilege. Uh, so, I mean, they're getting away from the fact that government can choose to do this. Mm. Um, but uh, what I'm saying is I think I'm at the orthodox end of the spectrum, which is that I think the default position should be that, that legal advice is confidential and that and that clients, by which I mean ministers here and departments, uh, have the assurance mm. that when they seek advice, it's not instantly going to become. Public. Yeah, and I think actually the point that you made about the sort of behavioural impact that it could have of just, you know, if people, you want them to be encouraged to yeah. ask for advice because they feel the security of that. I think that at the moment is the default that I would sort of veer towards. I think you'd have to have a major cultural yes. shift. Uh, where ministers were actually comfortable with this coming out and didn't therefore close down debate because they're worried about it. And, you know, we already talk anecdotally about the effect that FOI has or has not had on uh, official advice more generally. So, you know, it's, it is something to think about. I'm sorry, sorry, Raphael, just to go back to where we started. Mm. If you want the role of lawyers in government or indeed in any other organisation to be that they are involved early at the stage when policy is still being created and talked about and shaped, if that starts becoming public straight away, mm. you instantly freeze up that kind of free, open dialogue that I think most of us here, certainly as lawyers, would say that's a good thing, we should encourage that. Mm. But it only really works if there's a measure of confidentiality around it. Mm. Let's have some questions. Uh, I'll take these in little groups. If you are in the spillover room, then feel free to pop your head around the door and stick your hand up. 
Uh, and if you could tell us, uh, wait for a mic to come to you, they should be floating around. If you could tell us uh, your name and who you are, and uh, particularly given the time, if everybody could make a real effort to keep their questions brief, focused, and genuinely questions, rather than discursive disquisitions followed by, do you agree? Um, then uh, I think we'd probably all be very grateful. Uh, are there mics floating around anywhere? Excellent. Uh, could I have start at the front here? Uh, Sweeling Harris from the Legal Education Foundation. Thank you very much for a very interesting discussion. Uh, taking us away from the um, high abstract uh, constitutional topics that have been the focus so far, I don't know whether you've had a chance to read the Committee on Standards and Public Life's report published yesterday on the use of AI in um, public life. I would imagine you're very busy and, and may not have done. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things that the uh, committee highlighted in that report was the importance of government finding a, a proper legal basis for the use of AI and, and such uh, algorithmic tools in government activities. Um, and and I, the foundation for which I work does a lot of uh, work in relation to using such systems to aid decision-making, for example, in the DWP or the Home Office and so on. So my question is, uh, how do you see the role of um, your team and, and your colleagues in terms of advising uh, departments as they are adopting the use of these tools? Thank you. Uh, let's take a couple more and then we can... Uh, over here, please. Thank you very much. <coughs> Good evening. Say thank you for having this meeting tonight. My name is Maxine Kerr and I'm a campaigner for the um, human rights for the unborn. And for me personally, and many, many people have been campaigning over this issue for many, many years, um, I believe that um, this law, the Abortion Act of 1967, has personally passed its cell by date. And also the fact that um, we've actually allowed this law to gone on, to go on, um, on abated basically for the past 52 years and costing nine million lives of the unborn as well as the, the lives of the, um, the vulnerable women. Um, I would like to save some money uh, to the Treasury and for us to save money and um, rather than spend it on millions of pounds on abortion, I would like us to use that money wisely to put it to better use. So I would like to ask the, the um, Sir, Sir Jonathan um, in regards to the Abortion Act and the fact that we ought to be considering the human rights of the unborn and the policies have gone on too far and too long and it's time that the government has overhauled this legislation. Thank you very much. Uh, let's take a third and final question in that round. Um, there's a hand right at the back there. Richard Parker from Gowling. Jonathan, I just wanted to ask a question more broadly around your role as being Primsec for GLD. Um, 
interested in your views on what you think the key attributes are of a lawyer advising government, but also um, in reference to one of the advisors to the Prime Minister, do you need more Martians and Mavericks in your wider team? Okay. Is well, that that's a mixture. Misfits and weirdos. <laughs> uh, let me deal them in order. Um, AI, I mean, the truth is that development of a legal system to cope with a world of AI will be a massive legal and potentially legislative project, uh, which will, of course, involve government lawyers in advising on the development of a new legal framework and taking through legislation. So uh, new novel territory may be, but the role of the lawyer in developing a legal code to deal with it will be you know, much the same as we've already described. Whether AI becomes part of the delivery of legal advice itself, I think, uh, well, we're at the very beginning of that debate too. So I think we just have to sort of wait and see how that unfolds. I really can't comment on the Abortion Act. Um, any judgment about whether to, to change or repeal uh, an Act of Parliament is for politicians, not for me, I'm sorry. Um, now what about Mavericks? I think probably we've got a few, uh, a few mavericks. I, I hesitate to say weirdos, um, but, we like, but we like to think we are a diverse, uh, representative, lively bunch of people um, in the GLD and the wider legal community. Um, what are the characteristics that we ask for? I think much of this will be, I, I hope, sort of implicit from the debate we've had. We want people who are bright, who are problem solvers, who like to get involved in helping uh, the development of better policy and helping ministers make better decisions, who, uh, yes, are willing to give tough advice when that's necessary, but in the end are up for helping uh, uh, develop good policy and good decisions. Um, it helps if you're interested in public service and in public affairs. It also helps if you're not averse to a bit of controversy and occasionally even being uh, name-checked in the papers, not necessarily by name, but your work appearing on the front pages. If you look today, uh, you will see the headlines are around uh, coronavirus and terrorist sentencing and HS2 and deportations to Jamaica and what do those things all have in common? You can guess. We're involved in all of them. Kath, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, just on that point, I had the pleasure of interviewing Paul Jenkins, one of your predecessors, uh, a few years ago, and he was fascinating talking about how uh, the GLD had changed over the course of his time in office from when he first arrived. And I, I can't remember if it was pinstripe suits or morning suits that everyone had to turn up in every single day uh, to it being modernised. And also the, change, the shift from, uh, you know, it would take forever for, uh, you know, you'd have all, all the work would be done via letter writing and so forth and cases could take a while and proceed at a leisurely pace to you have to respond to this email within 10 minutes or you're off to court. Mm. Um, and I think the other thing though is worth talking about this and why it's, it's actually really good having you here today is that I'm not sure that there's enough visibility about this as a career option for people and it really should, you know, it's one of the sort of acute areas where people really mm. get into public law and see it sort of at the coalface, effectively. Um, and, uh, you know, it, as with all professions that people are coming to, into in the civil service, there's been a huge amount of work done to sort of modernise, give more career options and so forth. Paul actually talked about the idea that uh, government lawyers were kind of the legal generalists 
of the world in as much as they had to get into so many different options. People would end up specialising in particular areas, but nonetheless you had to be able to turn your hand to lots of different areas and how fascinating that was. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's a recruitment call for people as well. Well, um, it's partly why I'm here, partly why... Well, it's raising the profile. Partly, not necessarily to recruit any of you. Uh, I mean, some of you, sorry, the ones who already work for me. I'm very, I'm very happy that you carry on working for me. Um, but, but the idea of raising the profile, I think you're right. The, the work we do is not, is not generally understood. It's quite difficult talking publicly about some of it. Um, but we're trying to do more. It's one of the reasons why modestly I tweet. It's one of the reasons why I started today talking to a group of school children from schools uh, which would not traditionally have uh, sent their pupils into the law or the civil service. And we deliberately reach out to some of those schools. And we have 40 school children, teenagers today. Um, of course, uh, terribly bright, terribly interested. Uh, and if some of them end up joining us in a few years' time, that would be great. We just definitely need to do more of that. Mm. Let's see if we can just fit in a couple of very, very quick final questions. Uh, could I Come to the, the lady in the third row here, first of all. Um, hi, my name is Nkape Ete. I'm from Accenture. Uh, thank you for a very uh, interesting discussion. I wanted to ask, how is the GLD, um, I guess, responding or preparing in terms of the many changes that are coming? And so AI is one of them, mm. but you have to deal with the, the procurement, a lot of, the, of these kinds of technologies. And how are you preparing your, you know, your, your, your structure yeah. to deal with those. Yeah. Okay. Uh, can we go to the uh, gentleman near the back there? Hi there, I'm, I'm Ben Young, <coughs> excuse me, Ben Young from Durham University. I've got two questions. One is a serious can question. Can you give us the best a... one? Sorry? Yeah. <laughs> well, the first one is, um, so if you want good policy, you need at least two things, right? You need good policy officials and you need government lawyers. I mean, you need good policy officials because they're the ones who kind of instruct government lawyers about how the policy is going to work. Um, I did a study a few years back about government lawyers and one of the things they were concerned about was um, the lack of institutional memory amongst policy officials, um, either because of churn or because of um, policy advice wasn't really regarded as a core skill amongst the civil servants, the generalist civil servants. And I wondered if this is still an issue amongst, uh, for government lawyers now, the, the kind of lack of institutional memory. Uh, amongst policy officials. And the second quick question is, um, you're a permanent secretary, you're unusual in that you have subject experience in your department, but most of the role of a permanent secretary is about management. And I just wondered, if that's so, is there room for the next treasury solicitor to be a, a non-lawyer? Do you want me to do with those two? Yes. Um, so on tech uh, uh, and AI and generally, we um, yes, we have conversations in my department about how we can use technology to support what we do, uh, whether it's our uh, electronic case management system for litigation or whether it's the way we share information across the department uh, and recently whether there are ways in which we can provide services to our clients uh, in a modest way through a digital platform. So um, we're doing work on that. I think it's fair to say we're not going to be absolutely the cutting edge on those things, but we think there is more that we can do to harness technology in the way that we uh, uh, create and share knowledge in the way we, we deliver our services. 
and, and there are people in the room here that support me on that. Um, on whether policy is a scarce... So there is something in this um, that uh, if there's a gap in policy-making capability uh, within civil service, it's not unusual for lawyers to be called on to fill the gap. Um, uh, and that may be flattering, but in the end it's not terribly desirable. And there's a whole set of issues around why that might be. Um, it's partly, I guess, to do with this historical view of policy-making as a kind of generalist skill. It's partly to do with, and there is again something in this, the speed with which, the frequency with which uh, uh, people move around in government. Um, but we've been tackling this, and there is now a distinct policy profession within the civil service uh, with a, a, a proper framework of training and skills and a career path. Um, so I hope we're beginning to tackle this idea of policy simply being a generalism and turning it into a proper um, uh, specialism and a proper profession. Uh, and if we get that right, and if we keep people around long enough that the corporate memory is, poss is, is properly retained and passed on, then, then you get the kind of rich relationship that I've talked about between policymakers and lawyers, and that's, what, that's the ideal that we strive for. And as for whether the next Treasury... I think the Treasury Solicitor probably will always be a lawyer. I'm sorry to disappoint, <laughs> um, to disappoint any would-be non-legally qualified Treasury Solicitors in the room. But it is certainly true that, uh, as a Permanent Secretary, I'm also responsible for running quite a large organisation, and um, uh, there is a leadership element to that and a, and a, and a big management element. Um, and I don't, for a moment, claim to embody all of those skills perfectly in me, but um, I'm supported in them by my colleagues, who certainly do include professionals who are not lawyers. Um, so, of course, across the wider department, uh, we, need, we need the full range of specialist skills, not just legal ones, and that's what I have. I, I mean, I, just briefly on that last one, I think it's fascinating, actually, um, uh, you know, to talk about the different kinds of profession in government where you do actually need to have not just subject expertise but also qualifications uh, to do so and the government and uh, sorry the civil service have uh, you know made lots of different kinds of uh, efforts backwards and forwards over uh, wanting leaders who are general, all-round generalists versus those who've got actual skills they try to push for more people with proper delivery skills to be able to reach the top of the uh, you know, top of the ranks of the civil service, there are obviously always going to be areas, and I think legal profession is one where you do actually need to be qualified in order to do the job properly. Um, and I go back to that point that I made earlier on about, um, you know, when you have ministers who think they know about uh, the law but don't necessarily do so, it's why they need to make sure that they've got <laughs> law actual lawyers around them to do that job. And on that note, um, uh, I'm sure you'll all join me in thanking Sir Jonathan very, very much indeed for coming this evening. <laughs>